Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today is episode 84, Lies of the Magpie, chapters 40 and 41. Hello, friend. Welcome. So glad you are here. Today is the last episode of our summer series. Can you believe it? What a summer. It has felt like an eternal summer. And as I've been thinking back on things, wow, we have experienced a lot in our family, in our neighborhood. We've had an unusual amount of funerals and not necessarily coronavirus funerals, just some strange, odd mix of things. We've had a lot of weddings in our neighborhood as well. We've had a family birth during this time. My first great nephew was born and he was so anxious to come into this world. He came at 28 weeks. So it has been interesting for me to look back at weddings and funerals and births and just the whole gamut of experience. And it makes me wonder about how these last couple of months have been for you. I hope you're hanging in there. We are all doing the best that we can and that's what matters. I hope that these chapters of Lies of the Magpie have been a good part of your life, maybe even a highlight over the past couple of months. I love books. I love literature. I love a book that will offer an escape from reality for a little while, but even more, I love a book that I can sink my teeth into and that when I'm finished will really stay with me and give me kind of an aha perspective, a new way to look at life. And my goal in writing Lies of the Magpie was for it to be both. I wanted it to be very interesting, compelling writing that you could get lost in, but also a story full of messages that would make you keep thinking about it for days and days after and empower you to see your life in a new way. So if you've gotten some entertainment value out of listening, a few laughs, as well as some meaty sink your teeth into messages, then I'm satisfied with my work. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, these chapters are not going to bring you to the end of the book today, but I am giving you what is the pinnacle chapter of the whole story. Chapter 40 really sets everything up. Chapter 41 is the turning point. Everything I have been struggling with and trying to understand what my body's saying and doing traditional medicine and holistic medicine and studying and praying and just fighting through everything is finally in chapter 41 going to click together and all make sense. And so I am very excited for you to be able to listen to chapters 40 and 41 today to finish our Lies of the Magpie summer series. And of course, to learn what happens in the final eight chapters, you can find the book in paperback and Kindle form on Amazon. In fact, I think both are being offered on sale this week. I think Amazon is running some back to school promotions on juicy literature. So if you haven't picked it up yet, go as soon as you can to Amazon and check out the Kindle and paperback special prices. Because even though the book is definitely worth paying full price, we all like a sale, don't we? I know I do. So in last week's chapters, chapter 38, I hit rock bottom moment, all is lost moment. That was a hard one. Sorry about that. The book from here on out feels much better, much more triumphal. So you've made it through the hardest parts. And that's why I'm excited to present for you today, 
the following audio chapters of Lies of the Magpie. Chapter 40 Body Worlds Danny was about five years old when he came to me one day with a ringing in his ears. He'd never experienced ear ringing before and struggled finding words to describe it. He told me he had a sound in his ears and explained it this way. I think God is talking, he said, cupping his hands over both ears. But I don't know what he's trying to say. Me too, Danny. What does it mean, this noise and disruption, this ringing in my ears? Recently, I read that pain and sickness are the body's way of sounding a warning bell to call attention to the fact that the spirit is diseased. Is that what I'm hearing? A warning bell? For a year, I've been pleading for God to make me well again. Teaching the New Testament, I became familiar with the stories of Jesus' miraculous healings. He rubbed dirt into a blind man's eyes and the man could see again. Jairus' daughter was dead and Jesus called her back to life. The woman who spent all her money on doctors, she and I could be pen pals, except her story had a seemingly simple ending. She touched the bottom of Jesus' robe and was healed. My story is still going. I'm intrigued how healing takes place in different ways for different people. Some are healed outright by merely asking. Some are required to take action, like dipping seven times in a river. Some are carried to their miracle by the faith of others. Sometimes people have to be in Jesus' presence, while others were healed long distance. What about me? Do I need to bathe in the River Jordan? Do I need a troop of friends to lower me through a thatched roof? The theme for the Women's Church Social this month is Indonesian Cultural Night. Seeing as how transporting my body from home to any location nearly requires a forklift and industrial straps, I almost don't go. But miraculous things tend to happen when women gather, and I am in the market for a miracle. The speaker mentions little about her Indonesian culture and mostly relates the story of being abandoned by her husband and left to provide for her children alone. She said, For a long time I questioned God, why me? Then I changed my prayer to help me. And after that, everything transformed. She found a job, raised her kids, and became stronger than she knew she could be. From then on, my prayers changed from heal me to help me. What does my body need me to know? Rather than begging God to take it away, to make it all better, I start saying, teach me about it. I think there's an old adage about how if a student shows up hungry for answers, a teacher will appear with a combo meal. Teachers show up for me in a variety of shapes, forms, and guises, some of them plastic. It's a Friday night and Aaron and I go on a date night to the Arizona Science Center to tour Gunther von Hagen's Body Worlds. On exhibit are real human bodies preserved through a process of plastination. The bodies are posed in various forms of human experience, catching a ball, riding a horse, ice skating. According to exhibit literature, the bodies were donated to von Hagen's Institute by the people who lived in the bodies prior to their natural deaths, and with full knowledge of being preserved and studied for years beyond death by having their internal liquids replaced with plastic upon their departure. None of the exhibits have skin, 
so their former identity is unrecognizable. Where these people who once inhabited these bodies are now is a debate that has inflamed science and religion for centuries. Without getting entangled in that debate, I will simply add my own humble opinion that, as I stare at molded faces, hardened torsos, statue-like arms and legs, those people are not here. The miracle of von Hagen's plastination is that every microscopic detail of the human physique can be preserved in exquisite detail without decay, discoloration, or smell of formaldehyde. I spend 10 solid minutes staring at the perfectly preserved circulatory system of a human face. Every vein, every artery that pumped blood to the person's cheeks when blushing is here for me to examine. What is missing is the emotion that caused the individual to blush. What had happened? What was he or she thinking and feeling? Who was the personality around the intricate highway of blood vessels? The piece I can't stop staring at is a body posed with arm outstretched and holding its skin loose in its hand, as if it had just undressed and was going to toss the skin in the laundry basket like worn pajamas. Studying the figure, I can't tell eye color, hair color, or ethnicity. I can't judge if the face has a flawless complexion or was riddled with acne. Without skin, the person is all muscles, bones, and organs. There is no indication of popularity, social status, or income level. No signs of race, religion, class, or IQ. The exhibit demonstrates one thing plainly. On the inside, we really are all the same. I am transfixed. By stepping out of the skin, this person has stepped out of all stereotypes. The skin looks so heavy, like the poor arm will break under the weight. Aaron comes back and takes my hand, urging me to move ahead. Our babysitter must be home by 10 p.m. Moving through the museum, we study brains, hearts, lungs, stomachs, and examine every system of the human body from digestive to nervous. There are kidneys, spleens, and livers. What I do not see is human individuality. None of these organs or cells or tissues are the source of personality. There is no consciousness here. The experience at the museum does two things for me. One, it reiterates my long-held belief that I am not my body. And somehow this understanding makes me also understand that I have not been listening to my body. We are separate entities, my body and me, but for now we are symbiotically intertwined. We are interdependent, my body and me, and I have been a careless, irresponsible roommate. All my life I've worn busyness and exhaustion as a badge of honor. Running my body into the ground has been my attempt to earn worthiness, to prove I'm the opposite of lazy. And for the past year, I've been trying to force my body to snap back into being an indefatigable slave to my image of perfection. For the first time, my heart is cracked open to the idea that life could be something else. In the slightest way, I'm beginning to see the flicker of possibility that it's possible to live without carrying the weight 
of flawless skin. Chapter 41, Magpie For seven days I've swallowed those little thyroid pills without noticing much difference. Then today I wake up with enough energy to leave the house and take Tanner and Jack to story time at the library. The new Surprise Library, built in 2002, is state-of-the-art compared to the old one-room house where I used to take Danny and Kate faithfully every week. This library is closer with quadruple the collection, but I've never brought Tanner and Jack to story time here. My ulterior motive for the outing is to pick up my library loan book before it gets returned to its home library tomorrow. Under the W's, I see my name poking out from a book entitled Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. I'm embarrassed the subtitle is exposed for all to see. The Breakthrough Program for Conquering Anxiety, Depression, Obsessiveness, Anger, and Impulsiveness. An acquaintance has a book on hold next to mine, and I wonder how many people have seen my name attached to this book about depression. Later, after lunch, the boys go down for naps. Aaron heads to Goodyear, and with no piano students arriving, there is a rare pocket of solitude about the house. Gathering the book along with a journal and pencil, I go to my bedroom and settle in the rocking chair to study. Interesting. The author's last name is Amen, like the final word of a prayer. The introduction explains that if I'm anxious, depressed, prone to anger, or easily distracted, I might worry the problem is all in my head. How did he know? Dr. Amon's research in brain scans has shown that many perceived psychological issues are actually problems with the physiology of the brain. He has my rapt attention. Is it possible my struggles arise from something physically broken in my brain and not because I'm weak? My cardinal rule is to read books from cover to cover starting with page one and continuing to the end, never jumping ahead to see how the story ends. But this time, I find the table of contents and skip directly to the chapter my body tells me I need, the limbic system. Page 37 informs me that an overactive limbic system causes decreased motivation and difficulty getting out of bed and moving through the day. Really? Furthermore, a malfunctioning limbic system results in appetite and sleep problems. No way. Seeing life events as negative, and experiencing floods of negative emotions. He's describing my life to the letter. With pen and notebook ready, I can hardly wait to dig into chapter four, the prescription for deep limbic healing, when a door slams and Laya's voice calls hello. What are you up to? She enters carrying her clipboard as usual and perches on the armrest of the love seat. I just put the boys down for naps. I whisper, hoping she'll get the hint and I'm going to read this book that has been collecting dust on the library loan shelf for two weeks. Really? Laya cocks an eyebrow. Reading? I know, you don't have to say it. There are a million things that need to get done. Lunch dishes are still on the table. Kate's broken sandal needs to be glued. Okay then, don't mind me. Laya folds her legs, cocks her chin, and studies the clipboard. I proceed to read. To heal deep limbic system problems, we need to focus on accurate thinking, the proper management of memories. When do you expect Aaron back? Laya's question makes me automatically check the time on the clock. Doesn't Aaron regard reading as a waste of time, especially if there's work to be done? 
What if Aaron walked in right now and saw me reading? My heartbeat takes on a level of panic. He would think me a lazy faker, playing sick, so I could get out of working in Goodyear to stay home and read. A man should never find his wife being idle. Lia scratches a note on her clipboard. Closing Dr. Amon's book, I jump to my feet and flit around. I have to look busy when Aaron comes in. What to do? I need something visible like vacuum lines in the carpet or something baking in the oven. He has to be able to see what I've accomplished. My feet are primed to sprint from the starting gate when I hear the voice of the woman from Indonesian Cultural Night. Help me. Teach me. Recently, I heard a speaker say that the only thing we really need to do every day is to feel the love of God. In the New Testament, there is a story about Mary and Martha hosting Jesus for dinner. Whenever our church missionaries come for dinner, I pull out all the stops, baking homemade rolls, brownies, and sauce from scratch. I can't imagine the prospect of cooking for Jesus. When he arrives, Martha is running around, stirring the gravy so it doesn't get lumps, and setting placemats and matching dinnerware from Ikea. The story goes something like that. It's been a year since I read it. Meanwhile, Mary welcomes Jesus, tells him to make himself comfortable in the front room, then sits at his feet, listening to his stories. All fired up with vexation, Martha stomps into the front room and tattles to Jesus that Mary isn't helping. Calmly, Jesus says, Martha, you're fantastic. Dinner smells delicious. Mary needs one thing tonight. Will you give us a minute, please? I might be paraphrasing. After dinner, Mary cleans up all the dishes, maybe even some of the men pitch in, and Martha gets her time with Jesus. At least, that's how I think it ends. One thing is needful. Help me. Teach me. So instead of mixing dough for a homemade pie, I pick up Dr. Amon's book again and head for the family room. A beautiful October day has settled around our house. The summer heat is gone and Aaron has removed the dark sunscreens from the windows. Before sitting in a new study spot in the comfy corner of our sectional, I pull open the drapes, allowing unfiltered light to pour onto my face and fill the room. Settling into the sunniest spot on the couch, I reopen the book to pages showing images of healthy limbic systems compared to overactive limbic systems. Dr. Amon explains that people with limbic glitches are bombarded by a continuous replay of hopeless, dispiriting thoughts. This brain malfunction causes people to suffer from what Dr. Amon calls ants, or automatic negative thoughts. These ANTs are an unrelenting army which volley machine gun fire in the form of hopeless phrases such as, I should have done better, I'm a failure, no one appreciates me. As a result, people with this condition feel regret about the past, anxiety about the future, and dissatisfaction in the present. These people sound like me. What he explains next makes me feel like I've made a major breakthrough in molecular theory. Thoughts are real. What? A thought is an electric signal sent through the brain. Thoughts are as real and as powerful as electricity. My hand moves quickly across the paper, taking notes and highlighting text. I am absorbing every word and concept until, 
Laya enters making a ruckus in the kitchen, scooping dirty dishes, clanging them in the sink along with the ones from breakfast. Opening the dishwasher to unload the clean dishes, she gives me a look that says, you should be doing this, and glances at the clock to show that an hour has already passed. My afternoon is nearly gone, and I haven't accomplished anything. I stand to go do the dishes. One thing is needful. Taking Dr. Amon and my notebook, I open the door to the back patio and shut Laya inside. It's the most lovely room temperature weather. Overhead, the sky is blue with puffs of cotton white clouds. My eyes close, letting the sun glow on my face. Stretching my legs out on the grass, I reopen the book and follow Dr. Amon's instruction on how to exterminate ants. Write them down. On a fresh, blank page of notebook, my pencil presses, poised and ready, but nothing comes out of its pointed graphite tip. What are my ants? Do I have an ant problem, as Dr. Amon suggests all people do? What automatic negative thoughts repeat over and over in my mind like a broken record? Suddenly, the pencil is flying across the page. My automatic negative thoughts. Ant number one. My husband doesn't love me. Ant number two. After years of marriage, my husband has discovered that his initial high impression of me was inaccurate. He is disappointed with me and wishes I were a more capable person. Ant number three. My husband quantifies my time. He thinks I should use my time differently than I do. Ant number four. By having and taking care of children, I have given up my chance to achieve significant success in my life. Ant number five. The person whose name is on the paycheck has superiority over the person who cares for the home and kids. Ant number six. Aaron never notices the good things I do. When at last the pencil stops scribbling, I lift my hand from the paper, stretching it open and shut against the cramps, then shake off the pins and needle sensation that comes after having written fast and hard. I flip the page back and forth, astonished that I filled two sheets with pencil markings, but they seem to be nothing more than pages of scribbles. Then, on closer examination, individual letters appear before my eyes, and each individual alphabet letter joins with other letters to make words. The words join together to make sentences. These sentences repeated over and over constitute my thoughts. Ant number seven, being a mother isn't enough. Ant number eight, nothing I do is ever enough. Ant number nine, I am not enough. My paper goes dark. In the shadow, the curved shape of letters linked together across the page seems to create an image. I hold the paper out in front of my face, tilting and turning, angling the paper toward the light, trying to see the hidden image. My hand had written so fast, pushing heavy on the pencil, forming letters thick and bold. In my untidy cursive, the letters appear shackled together, as if handcuffed to their neighbor by heavy-laden graphite chains. Line after notebook line are filled with lengths of chain. I have been a prisoner to these words for years, but somehow the process of writing out these thoughts has unlocked their hold on me. The words look weak and powerless dressed in number two-point graphite crouching in uneven huddles on the lined paper 
of a ten-cent notebook. Where had these ants come from? Who introduced such ignoble notions into my personal space? Did I begin life with these sentiments as an innocent baby? Surely not. Then who first spoke these words in my mind? And worse, who has repeated them over and over like an old broken record player? A black silhouette casts a shadow over the page. Following the shadow across the grass, I look up and find the source of the dark. Laya is perched in our palm tree. She looks so out of place sitting in a tree while dressed in a black and white business suit. She tilts and turns her head, looking everywhere but at me. With the sun lighting her from behind, for the first time I notice her glossy eyes. This is what has plagued me for years? I shake my notebook at her. At long last, I understand what my body has been trying to tell me. Laia swoops down from the tree and stands between me and the paper, her figure blocking the sun. With arms crossed over her chest, she taps her foot impatiently. Do you know how long you've been lounging out here? It's nearly three o'clock, and what have you achieved today? A library trip and a few naptime books? You are always so unproductive. No wonder Aaron is constantly disappointed in you. You should be cleaning the house and preparing a nice dinner to prove that you deserve his love. Yesterday, I might have fallen for Laya's little game and dashed into the kitchen to start cooking. But now I am hearing her words as if for the first time. And they sound a lot like the words scribbled over two pages in the notebook I'm holding. She hops nervously in a circle around me, worried about the look of revelation in my eyes. Still, she doesn't let up. Aaron has carried all the weight of this magazine since you got sick. He's doing his job and yours, so if he comes home and has to make dinner after discovering that you've idled your afternoon in the sun, he'll regret marrying such an incompetent slouch. In the past, I would have accepted Laia's statements at face value and allowed them to sink into my skin and settle like poison in my blood. Instead, at this moment, I hear Laia's words and recognize that she is merely restating aunt number three, my husband quantifies my time. She's doctored up the vocabulary and personalized the specifics, but the meaning is the same as hundreds of various phrases she's harpooned at me for years. Aaron doesn't love you. Focusing back on the paper and ignoring Laia's blather, I let my hand loose to write again. This time following Dr. Amon's instructions for exterminating automatic negative thoughts, I write my own response to each numbered ant. Next, to ant number four, by having and taking care of children, I have given up my chance to achieve significant success in my life. I write, truth number four, children do not detract from my life. They add to it. Being a mother is a successful occupation. So preoccupied watching my messages of truth stream onto the paper, I don't notice them until my hand stops and I look up. Dozens of black and white magpies have landed in my yard. They squawk, making horrific noise, each one trying to outdo its neighbor. Aaron doesn't love you. Aaron regrets marrying you. Being a mother isn't enough. Your children prevent you from being successful. You have to make money to be worthwhile. Around me, the birds swoop, hover, hop, land, just like that day with Miss Wickersham. 
closing in on me, their kind growing louder and louder until the noise is unbearable. Holding my hands over my ears, I stand up and lengths of chain fall to the ground around my feet. I know exactly who has repeated these toxic phrases to me. With my ears covered and my head cowered to avoid the beating of wings and beaks circling around me, I search for her. Lia. She's in the middle of the thickest cluster of birds. The magpies perch on her shoulders, her head. One is eating out of her palm. She squawks at them, and they answer. She pets the birds, acting nonchalant. But I see she has pecked at a hangnail on her finger until it bleeds. She strokes a magpie and pretends not to notice that I am coming toward her, but she is shaking. Our relationship, hers and mine, is about to get choppy. All the months of waiting, all the searching, I know exactly why I am sick. This is what has made me unhappy in my own life. This is what has weighed me down and made me feel worthless. Lia steps back as I thrust my notebook at her. These weak words have made me believe that everything about my life is wrong. Lia bites her lip and taps at the grass with her foot. And, I pause for emphasis, they aren't even true. Lia keeps her head down but looks up through her bangs. Lia, I stretch the syllables of her name. Laya Papaya. All these years she has been my constant companion. She has been my first go-to for advice. We've been so intertwined, almost the same person, that it never occurred to me that the things she says might not be true. In my head, I hear the chime of an old schoolyard chant. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Laya. Liar. You are a liar! She backs away across the gravel until she bumps into the tree. I snarl like a guard dog who has cornered a thief in the night. Lia straightens up a little and defaults to her same old song and dance. Flapping her arms, she dances about. Look what a sloth you've become. Come on, get going. You could have taught four piano lessons in the amount of time you've been out here dawdling. What will Aaron think? Dr. Amon says to talk back to automatic negative thoughts with statements of truth. I press forward. Aaron wants me to be happy. He wants me to use my time doing things that will make me happy. Laia fidgets over what card to play next. He didn't give you a gift for your birthday because he didn't think you deserved a present. You are so weak and broken that he can't even love you anymore. Instinctively, I recoil, the sting of Laia's words landing like a swarm of mosquitoes on my skin. But then I pause and listen. She's not saying anything clever, wise, or even accurate. She's only repeating that same old aunt number one that Aaron doesn't love me. Planting my feet deep in the grass, I point my finger at her nose. Aaron loves me or he wouldn't have asked me to marry him. A flood of warmth surges through my body, breaking a dam and releasing water into my dry, brittle organs. I can physically feel Aaron's love. My mind floods with memories, the emotion on Aaron's face when he kissed me on our wedding day, the first Mother's Day present he gave me, that time he kicked his own client out of our house 
for disrespecting me. Aaron doesn't love me because of a clean house or a homemade dinner. He loves me, and nothing I do changes his love for me. As the words leave my mouth, I hear them for what they are, truth. Speaking of truth, I must stop here with a confession. When Dr. Amen suggested writing a rational response to each automatic negative thought, I balked at the notion, thinking, this is stupid, this is nothing more than replacing a false negative with a false positive. I had no interest in playing that old psychology game about whether the glass is half empty or half full. But speaking the words out loud, I know something that I haven't known for a very long time. Aaron loves me. I know it. I can feel it. Because for the first time in a long time, I am allowing myself to believe it. Laya pulls back her head and tries to speak, but I don't let her chirp a word. The notebook is held plain in front of her face so she can read the words. Aunt number one, Aaron doesn't love me. You said this was true, I point to the statement. She raises her hands in defense. I never said it was true. I just said it. You decided what was true. I drop the notebook to my side, astounded. Laya capitalizes on my silence. Aaron has carried the weight of the magazine since you got sick. He's tired of doing his work and yours. Laya can see the change in my face, and she looks excited. She is antsy, waiting to see how I'll respond. I never said it was true. I just said it. You decided what was true. Laya is waiting, and I get the impression she has been waiting for a long time. For me to tell her the truth. Aaron wants me to get well. He loves me. More than anything else, Aaron wants me to be as healthy and as happy as I can possibly be. The sun rises higher in the sky, reminding me that sunlight provides both warmth and visibility. My bones, which have been empty and cold for months, feel as if warm cocoa has been poured into the marrow. In my mind's eye, I see all the times Aaron came home and made dinner or cleaned the house. He wasn't saying that I should have had dinner already made or that I should be a better housekeeper. He was showing me that he loves me. I can't believe I've never seen it before. I want to do cartwheels across the grass. For years, I've believed that Aaron detested living with me, and it has all been a lie. In working so hard trying to be a successful woman, I've deprived Aaron and the kids of having the woman they really want. Me. For the first time ever, Laya is speechless. But I have something to say. Are you even real? I ask Laya. I'm as real as you are, Laya answers. I am you. You are not me. I don't know who you are, but you are not me. Dr. Amen recommends challenging your automatic negative thoughts, and I plan to do just that. I don't know who Laya is, but no longer will I permit her to escapade in my life unquestioned. 
This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. If you haven't yet left a review on Amazon or Goodreads or both, will you take a minute and do that? It isn't necessary to have purchased the book through Amazon in order to leave an Amazon review. You can state in the review that you have listened to audio chapters from the podcast. And I am working to get up to 50 Amazon reviews so that libraries and bookstores will know that there is an audience and that this is a book that they will want to carry on their shelves. So thank you for helping me get to those 50 reviews. As always, be safe, stay healthy, and I will meet you back here next week for our exciting new fall series of The Power Podcast. See you then, my friends. Bye-bye.